Hello, and welcome to The Delicious Truth with Gloria Cotton. I'm Gloria. During this podcast, we're going to cover a variety of topics that are impacting our everyday lives. We'll look at four things for each topic. One, the absolute empirical truth. That's all about the facts and data. Then we'll look at the personal experiential truth. And that's about how those facts and others do and don't show up in people's lives and their experience of them. Next, the consequential, impactful truth. The difference this makes in people's lives. And finally, you'll hear about resources and solutions you can use to empower yourself and others. Welcome back to the Delicious Truth Podcast. In this episode, I'll be talking with Barb Lee. And our topic today is coughing while Asian. Let's jump right in. All right. So Barb Lee, oh my goodness. I'm so excited to have you on this call today on this podcast. Let me tell y'all a little bit something about my friend Barb Lee. Barb is the founder and president of Point Made Films and Point Made Learning. And here's what they do. They work with communities, organizations, corporations, public and private schools, colleges and universities. And they work with them to help them learn how to address, how to talk about uh, important issues that matter, starting with race and racism. And then the intersectionality of other dimensions of diversity. As Barb says, this is America. We need to talk about race and racism, okay? Most of us, the truth is, most of us are not taught how to engage about issues that have the depth of impact and that are with us this intently when we're children or anywhere else maybe in our lives. And we can't simply expect the next generation to solve all of our society's problems. We can't just put it this society any longer. People are dying because of this more and more every day. So if we don't provide people right now with the opportunity to learn explicitly about the issues we face and give them the tools for engaging in meaningful dialogue, we'll never get anywhere. So one, one other thing about this, and then I'm going to let you hear from Barb, okay? So here's what they do. They help people identify blind spots, how to engage in meaningful and honest dialogue. Let's not tiptoe around the thing. Let's not bludgeon each other. Let's do it respectfully, but let's talk about the real deal. And then what do we do about it? Do we just talk about it? No, we create, they create roadmaps and help people build inclusive relationships and environments wherever they are. Is there any reason for me not to love this woman? Last Mm. thing is what they say. As long as you're serious about inclusion and what it takes to get you there, we're ready to work with you. You got to come correct. I love it. Welcome, Barb. I'm so (laughs) glad to be here. Wow. What a nice introduction. Thanks, friend. Thank you. Thank you. Lovely. So today we're going to be talking about coughing while Asian. That's an intriguing topic. What's that about? How did that come to your mind? Well, I didn't invent it. I actually saw it online. Um, And I was telling someone recently, and I think maybe I said this on a panel I was on in a webinar that, you know, being an Asian American in this country is always its own work of identity. Mm. But COVID-19 put me through a refresher course. It brought back a lot of the 
experiences and the uh, soft bigotry, the um, exclusion of what I remember from, you know, being a kid and being a young adult. And I've been talking with our community, Asian American community and saying, you know, it was never gone. It's never like bigotry ever leaves. It just ebbs and flows. If you take a look at our history, mm-hmm. um, the history of anti-Asian uh, racism and immigration um, has always been with us. Uh, from the Chinese Exclusion Act um, to Vincent Chin, um, we have always struggled for the country. What is the Chinese Exclusion Act? What was that? You know, it was actually, um, if you ever want to play trivia, it's the um, only legislated uh, legislative act that excluded a specific race of people out of this country. So at the time after the railroads, there was that fear of a lot of Chinese people coming into this country and sort of taking over. And that's known as the yellow peril. And so Congress um, legislated a an act that kept Chinese people from coming into this country. And there's all kind of like, you know, political campaigns around it. You can see all of the um, uh, bigoted drawings and depictions of Chinese men and why they should be, you know, feared. We we all know what those drawings could look like. You know, people of every race have their own flavor and we have ours. Mm-hmm. And um, we were um, Asian Chinese specifically were excluded from this country. Wow. So we've always struggled for belonging and we're, um, we're doing it again with COVID-19. So I saw this online coughing while Asian. And of course it's um, a bit of a nod to um, whatever the gerund might be while black. Um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think today, especially today, even though you and I already had this date to talk, it's, I just feel we should take a moment and remember um, it's Ahmaud Arbery's birthday. Mm. And And now of course, jogging while black is, uh, you can't do that either, even in broad daylight. Yes. And so this gentleman that, that you just mentioned, because I don't know when people are going to hear this podcast. Uh, he was killed uh, in February of this year in Georgia, he was jogging wow. in his own community and two people uh, in a pickup truck, one, uh, a law enforcement officer, uh, retired, I believe, and his okay. son shot him down. Murdered him. They murdered him. They murdered him. Uh, saying that he, they thought there had been a series of robberies in the neighborhood and they thought he might have been the robber. And I'm saying, really? The man has on a T-shirt, a pair of jogging shorts, and shoes and socks. What? Where's he going to hide something? And so almost three months later, you know, as we're recording this today, um, he was. they were just arrested. Almost yes. three months later. They had yes. never been arrested. Yes. Yes. And unfortunately, had it not been for such an outrageous public cry, they would never be arrested. And that is the history of part of the history of racism in America. It just is. And so were it not for video, for video, this, this has been happening. It's not new. It's just yes. that we now have video, more smartphones. Yes. 
to capture what's been happening. Even with video, (laughs) that often doesn't mean anything. So that's true. Let's talk about uh, some of the discrimination and racism that Asian Americans have and Asian people are experiencing, uh, period, and how that's changed during this pandemic. Well, I think that we face the phenomena of invisibility. So you don't really know your Asian American neighbors here and there, maybe, but we have always faced a kind of invisibility. You don't really notice us unless that that we are your choice of porn or which um, apparently Asian women, Asian girls, uh, trends on porn twice that of any of the next race of porn, which is interesting. So unless we're your selection of porn or um, a martial arts film, um, we, re- we really are not very seen. So due to that invisibility, suddenly, whenever you have a leader saying things like the Chinese virus, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and at first it was the COVID-19 was being referred to as um, the Wuhan um, virus. Mm-hmm. And that was, I mean, the New York times even referred to it that way, but when, um, you know, government leader who's supposed to be a leader refers to it as the Chinese virus. Mm-hmm. Um, and people face their sort of primal instinct to want to visualize something that's invisible that they see as a threat. They look at, they're finally noticing people that they deem are Chinese that have an Asian or an Asian American face. So let me ask you about this threat. What are people so scared of? Here, here, here uh, in addition to the things that you said, here are the stereotypical things that people say, but these are good things, not realizing that all stereotyping is wrong. Um, but they're so smart. They know math. They got that technology thing sewn up. So what are they afraid of? I mean, has anybody had a conversation about that? I think in this case, they see Chinese people as having been the source and therefore the continued source of perpetuating a disease here. So they see Chinese people as a threat to their well-being and health, that we carry the virus. We may infect them with COVID-19. It's a point of ignorance, obviously. But I do think that's why they're threatened by people that they historically don't even, they don't even really pay attention to. But what is that rooted and grounded in? I mean, before COVID, there was this invisibility. Before COVID, there was this dismissal. What is, where does that come from? Well, like I said earlier, Gloria, it actually has always been here. It ebbs and flows. So when the Chinese first came and began to not and to be more pronounced in their population, coming to work on railroads, mm-hmm. coming to get the jobs that were available um, early on in, the, in, in immigration in the you know early 1800s, coming into California, suddenly they're seen as a threat. Now we've got to legislate them out. Okay, now we've got that back under control. In the 1980s, 
two white men bludgeoned um, Chinese American. He's an adoptee, by the way, a Chinese American man to death because they thought he was Japanese and he was the um, sort of tangible evidence of their Michigan um, car manufacturing jobs being taken away Uh, of Japanese imports. So they saw him as Japanese. So now that threat came back up again. And now another threat comes. Oh, there's COVID-19. It's the Chinese people. So it ebbs and flows from I don't never I don't even notice you to oh you're a threat. So here's what I have to you're making me remember I my very first car was a Toyota Corolla. And it Oh that yeah, girl. Time, in 1972, they were not making them yet in the United States and they do. They do now make them in the United States, but they were importing them. Okay, and then I was working with a client in Detroit. And here's what they said to me. So I, I live in the Chicago area. Um, one of the considerations was driving there in my Toyota. Here's what the company told me. Don't drive that car. Don't drive it and put it in the parking lot. I'm like, okay, so why not? Well, because we only want American made cars in the parking lot. And what can happen is, You'll come out, your car will be destroyed, and then some people will wait for you and they will hurt you too. I could not believe it. And here's why I can't believe it. One is just stupid. It's not, that's not ignorance. That's just stupid. Okay, I'm going to call it what it is. But the next thing is, ain't nobody saying that about a Mercedes Benz. Ain't nobody saying that about a Lamborghini or a Maserati, okay? Ain't nobody saying that about, about a Volkswagen, the Datsun. And nobody else. Why is it that people are saying this about a Japanese? I mean, it was like I got into an argument with my father about it. And I said, Dad, look, let me tell you one thing. When I don't have to buy an American car as soon as I finish paying off, paying it off, I'll be happy to buy it. But this is a miracle. Mm-hmm. I'm supposed to have the best car, okay? Do you remember, um, Gloria, back when they referred to them as rice burners? No. Oh, yeah. That was very common. That was very common to refer to a Japanese import car as a rice burner. That was, um, uh, you know, the younger people that are, you know, helping on your team. Just so you know, that was that was definitely part of the um, the description. Oh, you got a rice burner. And I think that that was just said very casually from people who would never think of themselves as being discriminating or um, bigoted, but yeah, it was a rice burner. I probably had that said among my friends in the eighties. So that was a piece of it is, uh, always seeing it as a threat and seeing the fact that the Japanese cars were lasting longer. They were cheaper and lasting longer. And that was a, that was seen as a threat. Yeah. So now that, you know, and the threat goes up and down, you can look at California, Berkeley, all the California schools as to the uh, the admission and the demographics of admissions at all of those schools. And a lot of California people started seeing Asian and Asian Amer- Asian American students as a threat to their admission. And so it got um, in California, the discrimination got jacked up around who was going to get in to uh, California system schools. So anytime there is 
a lot of us or anytime we become un- not invisible, we're seen as a threat. So that sort of is a, it's kind of a pattern for us. It kind of ebbs and flows alongside our constant need of trying to be successful here and to belong here and to have achievement here. So that's the experience of it. And so COVID-19 is just um, coming back to me as a refresher course. So thank you. This is, this is rich. And in a minute, I'm going to ask you, what, would, what advice would you give people about how to begin talking about this new level of discrimination? And here's what I mean about this new level. I'm talking about people and not just white people. People of all races, other than Asian, attacking Asian people, particularly Asian children, coming mm. out of before we had to, we were in sheltered in place. Children coming out of schools, mm. other children beating them up, and their parents beating yes. up Asian children. That's when I really got outraged and incensed about this hot mess that's going on. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. These people's people have probably been here longer than your people. You know what I'm saying? What are you doing? So what, with all this emotionality, earned emotionality, earned fear, what is a couple of things that people need to remember about engaging in conversation about this life and death topic? Well, the first thing, is to just remind yourself that many of the people you see with an Asian face are Americans. That's the thing is we are like other people who are not white. We are required to be hyphenated Americans, right? So I have to describe myself with a hyphen, right? My descriptor is Asian American. So number one, for those people who are not Asian and Asian American, realize that you you're looking at a fellow American. And I take issue also, I want to ask people to consider the notion of using the term xenophobic. You see this a lot used by journalists. A lot of stories will talk about the xenophobia that Asian Americans face. What is Xenophobia is a fear of strangers. And foreigners. So I, when something negative happens to me in a grocery store because of this face, it's not xenophobic. It's not xenophobia that I'm facing. It's just good old fashioned bigotry because I'm an American and no one's coming up who has a sense of fear or bigotry about who I am and qualifying me prior to whatever bigoted comment they're, they're going to say. They don't say, pardon me, ma'am, are you an American or are you an immigrant? Because I have something I'd like to say to you, but I'd like to d- decide whether or not you're actually a citizen. That's not happening. They see this face and they just go for it. And they see us all as not American. I, I'm, I'm remembering this. Uh, there was some commercial I don't remember several years ago, and I'm sure you saw it too. Where this um, a woman who has Asian features—I don't know what her ethnicity or what her mm. uh, race was—but she had Asian features. I'll say that. 
and she meets this guy. And so he's very friendly and she's, you know, hello, how you doing? And he says, well, where are you from? And she says someplace in California. And he says, no, but where are you really from? I've she seen this video. I love it. Yes. <laughs> then, and then she's not going to give him a different answer. And he goes, so where are your people from? <laughs> and I was like, okay, so how many generations are we going back? Because I guarantee you, boo-boo, your people are from someplace else too. And why is it that your people are okay, but my people are not? Why do I have to dignify and justify how many generations and it's never going to be good enough? And you don't have to do that. I don't understand. Xenophobia, the the fear of strangers. I'm not a stranger any more than you. That is the journey of discrimination for Asian Americans in this country. In all fairness, we are not necessarily being um, shot down and murdered like our fellow African American men. Um, we're, that's not happening to us overall. We're just not seen until something like this happens. And you have the president refer to the, the virus as a Chinese virus. And so people who are already afraid are looking at us and it reveals, it reveals the phenomena of the perpetual foreigner. That's something that is a part of the Asian American experience. You never really belong, which is why someone's asking, you know, where do you, where are you really from? And that's something that many um, white and African-American people don't face. Mm -hmm. If you have an accent and you're a black American, maybe they want to know, Oh, where are you from? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And we're tribal. Mm -hmm. It's a primal, it's a primal instinct. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You don't sound American. Right. (laughs) So uh, you don't look American. I need to know more. Like what, what what's going on here? Where's my tribe? You know? mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And and colorism is part of it too. Because well, you, you can have yeah. quote unquote, I don't even know what I, I heard myself saying Asian features. What in the world? What is that? Because is more people in the world who have the same features and but colorism is part of it. Uh and I thought about it because my daughter, who is African-American, is lighter skinned and she's got hazel eyes. She wears her hair as a natural, but it's got blonde and reddish highlights. And here's what she gets. What are you? Oh, yeah. Uh, that's a question that uh, a lot of people face. It's a, it's a question many Asian-Americans face. Um, I know they do. And I think a I lot know. of mixed people, people who, are, people who are mixed, face that question a lot. Mm-hmm. And Colorism is an equal opportunity discriminator all over the world. I've often said that people of color do as much for white supremacy as white people. They don't have to do the work anymore. We took over for them. (laughs) And we do colorism within our own groups. Um, Colorism absolutely exists in the Asian American uh, uh, culture. Yes. Lighter skin. White, uh, light is right. Always. Mm-hmm. White is right. You know, mm-hmm. we're, we're just as guilty as any other community of mm-hmm. minority race. Mm-hmm. Uh, we love lighter skin. We have to make sure we don't internalize that. Don't put that on our children. And that's the other piece of advice I would give to people who are within the Asian American community and identify that way is stay vigilant that mm-hmm. 
we don't internalize all of those messages mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. who we are and mm-hmm. what is beauty mm-hmm. and um, what is the right way to look, act, be. We have to be very careful and so, stay vigilant. I want to go back to something that you said about being invisible. So two things about that. What's the impact of being invisible in two parts? And so it's really three questions. I'll take it one at a time. What is the impact and the detriment of being invisible to others and then being invisible to myself? It's the same as any other person who doesn't feel seen. We talk to lots of young adults, teenagers, Asian American teenagers who are in secondary school or higher ed, they're in undergrad. Mm -hmm. And that's such a formative time for Mm -hmm. the final pieces of your identity. It's so important. And Asian students are the most frequent to be confused for someone of their same race and gender. What do you so mean? This happens all the time. So, you know, as a, you know, as a woman of color, mm-hmm. people have mistaken Gloria for um, Sandra, who mm-hmm. looks nothing like you. She just happens to be black and a woman, right? Yes. So this is a phenomenon that all people of color in America face. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Asian students face this at um, swelling numbers and, and it's the, the reason why it really hurts at that time is because you're trying to form an identity as to who you are and you want to be seen. And when you have teachers, even teachers, principals, um, upperclassmen who repeatedly can't see you, they can't tell the difference between you and another classmate who happens to be Asian and a woman, a young girl, you're like, oh, I'm not seen. I don't matter. And -hmm. you internalize that. If no one really helps you proceed through that um, kind of discrimination and invisibility, like I don't see you. I can't Mm -hmm. see your features. I can't tell the difference between you and Sandra for Asian American students this happens at this just happens at such frequent numbers that it, it happens to them all the time. Outrageous. And, so you, and and it's not like we're trying to have, you know, oppression Olympics here. It happens to all kids of color. Mm-hmm. And if you come from a culture where you're told to by your parents to not make trouble, to um, just fit in, to not stand out and not create any kind of problems, just go in and do your work. And they can't see you and they don't, they, they can't keep you straight. You internalize a lot of, a lot about that. You're invisible. So here's how that shows up in the corporate arena where I see it. We'll be going through introductions. People have name tents. They'll write their names on the name tent and they'll put beneath it a nickname. Um, not the phonetic Son, I've only seen a very few times where someone will write the phonetic uh, pronunciation of their name. It's usually whatever the name is shortened to something that's more white sounding, really. Um, I don't hear it with other races, no matter how the, what the name might be. So I don't hear 
African-Americans doing that. I don't. But I, I haven't seen it. Not saying that they don't. I've not seen it. But I see it a lot with Asian people. Now, here's what I do. And I do it, I do it with everyone, though. So if it's Stephen, I will ask, and it's a PH, I'll say, do you pronounce your name Stephen or Stephen? And so people will know, I want to call you what you want to be called, what your mama called you, what your daddy called you, whatever. Don't make it, and this is what I will say to people, don't dummy your name down for me. I'm smart enough to learn how to say your name. Teach me. Teach me. Help me expand my knowledge. I'm ignorant. That's all. And I mm-hmm. say that hoping other people will get, you don't have a right to shorten somebody's name because you're too lazy to say what their name is. And here, and here was my example. And this is the real mm-hmm. truth. You know, my name is Gloria. All right. I was in a class. This woman said, well, Gloria, I said, say why? <laughs> <laughs> she called me Gloria. I said, okay, so help me understand that pronunciation of my name. And other people looked at me and they started laughing and she didn't understand. She said, well, I knew somebody named Gloria. I said, Did they, were they a nice person? Yes, nice person. Tell me something about it. Mm-hmm. I said, that's so wonderful. I'm glad you had that experience with Gloria. Mm-hmm. I am not Gloria. My grandmother named me is Gloria. I'm going to need you to say that. Mm-hmm. She said, okay. I said, no problem. We got it. And kept it moving. We have got to, one of the things about being invisible is we have got to start teaching ourselves and each other to see ourselves. That's what I meant when I'm invisible to me. I have got to see me and see my beauty and see my worth, my value, not the crap that other people have been told about me that I repeat to myself. Does that make sense? It absolutely does. And I think that we know now through um, research and just social science that one of the reactions to and coping mechanisms of feeling invisible is hypervisibility, that Mm -hmm. hypervisible behavior where I must be louder. I must make sure that you remember me. And that is something that is um, done by a lot of people as a result of feeling invisible. But Mm -hmm. it's not necessarily something that is appropriate for a lot of Asian American culture. Mm -hmm. Some. Yes, 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 yes. I, I will tell you that if I ask, and I'm very gentle when I approach Asians, and some of them are Asian American and some of them are not. Um. Uh, whatever country they're from, they'll say that. They won't say Asian usually. The people need to get out of that. So um, they will true. say, it, it's, it's, it's all right. It's all right. You can just, just say this is easier. And so I, I really have to be careful because I don't want to make them uncomfortable because they've learned it's a coping thing. Just dummy it down because these mm. people don't want to or can't or something. And I'm looking at them saying, I'm not stupid. I can say this. There's nothing nothing wrong with my ability to articulate. It may take me a moment. I need to hear it because my ear is not accustomed to hearing that. Mm -hmm. And for some of our immigrant folks, they're from tonal languages. It is harder for us because we don't speak a tonal language. Mm -hmm. So some of those sounds are not native to us and they do take practice. Mm -hmm. Lots of practice. Mhm. Mhm. That's good. So that's all right. If I, anything, I want to be good at. 
Driving my Maserati when I get it. <laughs> I'm gonna have to start practicing driving that puppy. You know what I'm saying? So I mean, this is just what you do. It's an investment. Don't ask other people to be stupid because you are. What's up with that? Or ignorant out of their ignorance, now you just let them continue to be ignorant. No, boo-boo, it's time for me to help you, precious. It's all right that you didn't know. But here's what we can do. We need to learn from each other. So what happens when you're in these schools? What's the greatest thing when you're in schools or in companies doing your work? What's the greatest thing that well, you see happening? As a, as a teacher, there, I will always think of my think like a teacher. Um, and the facilitators at Point Made Learning, they're just world class, um, better than I am. And I think all of us feel the big payoff is when you see, you get that moment that every teacher loves, which is aha. Mm-hmm. When people get that aha moment, when it suddenly dawns on them what a microaggression might feel like for a, a friend, a coworker, when they have that moment of empathy. And especially when we hear this, and we hear this almost every time, oh my gosh, I never even thought about that before. Yeah. Um, when working, when women who are white, who've been working alongside their African-American colleague and they feel like they have a relationship with her. And then we might be doing the American dream game workshop, which, you know, um, uh, Gloria, but the people don't. So what is it? Well, it's a, it's um it's a, I can say it's a game, but it's really an experience where we take players, if you will, and they are assigned a character who is different in identity from that of their own. So Gloria as an African-American woman, you would maybe play Alex, who's a straight white man, or Jeremy, who is an Asian man. Mm -hmm. And you play the game to try to succeed at work, but not as yourself. You play as Jeremy trying to succeed at work and all of the rules and social mores and policies at work affect everybody and you see who gets ahead and who doesn't. And um, it's, it's brings so much clarity for so many people. So many times we'll see uh, a white woman who feels she has a really good working relationship with an African-American woman. And then maybe one of the situations that all the characters face is um, you are told to have um, neutral um, shoes um, for a work event, Um, skin tone, like what is, what, wait wait, wait a minute, what is, uh, or nude, nude shoes, nude um, under wires, you can't be, your, your bra can't be seen, so you need to have nude color. For any new kind nylons. of working. nude nylons, I love right. And you're like, what's nude? And then, of course, African American women are like, oh, here we go. Mm-hmm. And you know, many times we're asked to prove it. You can just go to Zappos.com, type in nude shoes, and see what the first three pages look like. And none of those shoes would be nude for Gloria Cotton. I love and that. 
So after that's one of those things that white women be like, oh my gosh, I never even thought about that before. That's good. I was I was gonna ask you, what do you do when people are just like, uh uh-uh, that's that's not real. That is because they don't know. In their world, a friend of mine said, We all live on the same planet, but we all live in different worlds. That's not in my world. That's not in my experiential truth. So the good news is playing with a group. When the good news is that when when we play with a group, we remember that our role is that of a facilitator. We Mm -hmm. seldom have to be the one to drop any truth bombs because somebody in that room who works with alongside that doubter is going to drop a truth bomb. We just all we have to say does does anyone want to respond to that? And inevitably, someone there wants to respond to that issue and takes that opportunity to say um, that that happens. That does happen. That is a true story because all the all the scenarios that we present are true. That's part yeah. of what we do. They're true stories, and someone will always step in and say, "That's true. That's I know that is true. It happens to me." Or it happens to my wife. I know that's true. I have a son who is fill in the blank. Mm-hmm. This happens to him. This is something that we deal with. It's not made up. I know that's true. And then that person, that doubter, because it's not someone from the outside saying it, um, says, oh, I, I didn't realize that. Mm-hmm. They, that they're, willing their relationship. they're willing to listen a little better. That so, is true. So, as we come to the end, I'm sorry to say, of our oh. time together, here's here's what I, I'd like you just to give people as we become more and more dangerous in living, working, playing with one another. The thing we use our words to attack people as well as other things. What advice would you give or just three things that people should consider to make it an environment in which we can? have these conversations? What should we do? Three things. Well, again, I really implore people to take a look around at Asian faces and realize that these are your fellow Americans, many of them, and don't assume that they're not American. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. I think for my Asian American community, I would say the conversations need to happen among us, we need to talk about what's happening among our inside of our own community. And we need to talk to our young people because young people are not going to come and report to you when bigoted things happen to them. They don't want to come tell you that someone said something to them that was demeaning. But we should assume that this has happened and open the conversation with our young people and be sure to tell them. If and when this happens to you, you I want you to say out loud, shame on you, not shame on me because I didn't do, you didn't do anything wrong. You are beautiful and perfect just the way God made you. Mm-hmm. When someone says something hateful to you in your mind, and again, if it's not safe to do it there, you do it at some point, you say shame on you. Not shame on me because otherwise we internalize that shame. Like we're less than. We believe that those people who are trying to make us feel small are right. And they can't do that without our cooperation. Yeah. And that is an exercise that I really 
um, implore parents and anyone who touches young people of color in this country to help young people learn to do. Shame on you, not shame on me. Mm-hmm. And then the last thing is, um, you know, I say this to uh, all Asian American folks, uh, the quotation from Sandra O. Oh, it's an honor just to be Asian. Take that and internalize that. You know, I've got a T-shirt with it on there. It's an <laughs> honor just to be Asian. So I love it. Hold your head up. Hold hold your head up. Yes, uh, you're an American. And those of you who are not American, welcome. We love you too. Mm -hmm. Hold your head up and Mm -hmm. see your beauty. Another piece of advice that I like to give to young Asian American students and people, young and old, is while we're facing this COVID-19 bigotry, this surge of bigotry, it's time to do a personal inventory. Think back on all the discrimination and all the news that we heard about other groups. And we can ask ourselves, were we the allies to those folks that we wish we had now because we all want to enjoy sometimes that sense of privilege of being grouped over here with the white people like we're honorary white people the white and Asians do this and black and Latino Latino and Latinx um, st- statistics are over here and um, we're used as a model minority the only reason you need a model minority is to hold other groups down. And so we definitely need to take this opportunity to make sure that we are the allies to other groups that we wish we had now, and that we are vigilant against being used as a model minority to hurt other groups. Hello. I love it. I want you to know this is, this is so great. The bottom line for me is, my goodness gracious, honey, we're all beautiful. We're all delicious. Okay. And I, I said to somebody the other day, I said, do you go to a smorgasbord? I asked them, what do you like to eat? They said steak. I said, is that the only thing that's on that bar? Or are there other things, other kinds of meat, fruit, vegetables, sweets, all that stuff, honey? I said, this life is a smorgasbord, baby. You're not going to want to eat everything, but guess what? Not everything was created for you, boo boo. All right. <laughs> So it's just, you know, understand that everything is good for somebody. If it's not you, keep it moving. Go on to the next thing. You don't stand there and rail against the chicken. Oh, chicken, what is wrong with you for being, (laughs) you know, but they got, they got that reference. They got that reference. And also at a smorgasbord, try something new. You might like it. You don't know. You, You don't know what you liked until you had it for the first time. Amen. Try thank that. You. Thank you. You know what? I thank, thank you, so, you much. so much for letting me thank be here. You. It's such an honor to be anywhere near you, even if it's in a podcast. I will. I'll take it. You are so delicious. And I want you to know that as soon as we can be together, there's a hug in your future if you want one. I want one. <laughs> wow, that was truly delicious. It really was. A lot to think about. And here are three things that I found most scrumptious about our conversation with Barb Lee today. And it was race, racism, bigotry, and colorism, how they all are together in a pot that is made out of fear and is being fueled by fear constantly. It's by people being afraid of us. 
that we're going to take something away from them or they'll never be able to achieve what we have. So they want us to dummy down so they can be comfortable. So we have to see ourselves for who we are, not rely upon someone else to see our beauty, our wealth, our value, our intelligence. We have to know who we are and declare that to be truth for ourselves and for everyone else. We have to know and taste our own deliciousness, y'all. And then we have to be allies for ourselves. Let's speak up for ourselves. Stand up, speak up, call ourselves in when others would keep us out. Y'all need to be listening to this, I tell you. Bye.